0: Chapter One. In the late 1800s, an anonymous writer published a book entitled Supernatural Religion. It upset many people by its vigorous attacks on the reliability of the church fathers and therefore the modern Christian faith. It was well praised by many reviewers and went into several published editions, but the Bishop of Durham, an Anglican pastor named J.B. Lightfoot, saw the book for what it was and began writing against it through a series of articles that he published between 1874 and 1877. And in each of these articles, piece by piece, uh, Lightfoot began dismantling the false theology and the historical errors of this book so well that before even the articles were finished, one publisher said, quote, the book has already been a glut on the secondary market. In other words, people were already trying to sell back and to get rid of their copies of the book. Last week in our series on Titus we saw the need for godly leaders in the church and that story helps illustrate why we need them as we will see in the text today and that is we need good and godly leaders who will confront and refute and guard the church against false teaching. A both theological error and the practical error of how to live, not for the glory of God, but for the glory of ourselves and have that seen in sin. We need pastors and godly leaders to, to put the kibosh on those things, to, to, to nip them in the bud, as it were, to put a stop to them. And Paul shows us this here in our text this morning. In the past, the church has always needed uh, godly leaders, particularly because of the threat of false teachers. And here, Paul shows that clearly by one simple word. The word at the very beginning of verse 10, the word for. He just talked in verses 5 through 9 about elders, about godly pastors and leaders. Why are they needed to shepherd the church? For there are false teachers leading God's people astray. Thus, what we see this morning in verses 10 through 16 is really the antithesis of everything that we saw last week. Everything that a teacher and a leader should be, these men are not. They fall short of that standard, but they also work against it. And so Paul tells Titus how to deal with them. Let's look at what he says in Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. The apostle says, For there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to, they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the Word of God. May He bless the reading of it. Notice from the outset that Paul says, There are many who are false teachers. It does not take long as you read the Bible to notice that anytime God begins to work, there are those who Satan raises up to stand against it. If you're going through our study of Nehemiah in the community groups right now in our Sunday evening time, you will know that as God has sent Nehemiah to be his leader among his people in his city to do his work, it did not take long for Satan to rise up, people like Sanballat and Tobiah to stand against him and cause trouble. And we see this to be the pattern all throughout History, as God begins to move in the hearts of men and women to do some great task, almost always associated with the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so the enemy raises up those that would seek to thwart it. And one of the most um, devastating things that Satan does is to raise up false teachers, those who come under the guise of God's people and yet actually destroy and undermine them. This morning, as we look to this passage, we don't—we not only want to see a description of these false teachers, but we also want to understand what we should do to protect the church from them. So, this morning, the first thing we're going to see is this: we need to be able to recognize the ministry of false teachers. We need to be able to recognize the ministry of false teachers. How can you tell a false teacher from a true teacher? What can be observed that marks out the individual's life as a false teacher? Paul gives. Three indications of such people. First, we need to be on the lookout for disgraceful character. Disgraceful character. One of the consistent marks of false teachers, we see this all throughout the New Testament, is that their lives reflect their doctrine. Namely, twisted doctrine leads to twisted morality. And, of course, we've said the last few weeks, one of the key themes in Titus is that belief and behavior are directly connected. So if you have a false belief, you're going to have ungodly behavior. If you have doctrine that is not accurate, that is twisted, that is out of joint from what God has taught in his word, you're going to have lives that reflect that as well. Thus, Jesus said you can recognize false teachers by looking at the fruit of of their life and ministry. And when you look at these men, what you see is something putrid and rotting. Paul says they are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They are insubordinate because they rebel against God. Rather than follow the clear instructions and doctrine that he has laid out in the Bible, they follow myths and the commands of people and the wrong people at that. They are not submitting to the commands of Christ's apostles, but instead they submit to those who fancy themselves teachers of God's word and yet actually have no idea what they're talking about it and add to it and emphasize teachings of their own devising. The result is that these false teachers are simply empty talkers and deceivers. The phrase empty talkers is only one word in the Greek original. It means those who peddle big words with vaporous content. Isn't that a picture? It kind of reminds me of those old, uh, old town western sets in Hollywood out in the hills uh, outside the city. And you'll, you'll have seen these things in television shows and movies. And if you were to stand on these sets, if you were to walk down the middle of the street, you would feel like you're in the Old West. You would feel like a cowboy. You'd kind of start walking a little bow-legged and, and want to pull down your hat because all the banks and saloons and buildings and hotels, all it just looks amazing. But the reality is on those things, they were put up on the cheap. And if you were to actually try and open the door and go in, what you would find is nothing but simple scaffolding holding up a false front. So from the outside it looks great, but if you were to go behind and try and go in and see, there's not really a hotel there. There's just boards that say hotel on the outside and that's it. And that's very much what Paul is getting at here on these men. They come with big words, impressive words, but there's nothing of substance behind them. In fact, then they deceive their followers. They make them believe they are offering helpful, spiritual truth when all they have is meaningless gobbledygook at best and hellbound heresy at worst. Therefore, they are nothing more than peddlers of spiritual snake oil. And the effects of these things are seen in how they live their lives. Paul says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, if I got up here and said all Michiganders are whatever, 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 part of you, we're like, hey, what are you talking about here? Okay, why is Paul saying this? Isn't he insulting the Cretan Christians? Not at all, because the Cretan Christians don't see themselves as Cretans anymore. They're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, these things—lying, gluttony, and evil bestiality—in the sense of bruteness in how you behave—that those things do not characterize the Christians in Crete anymore. Nevertheless, I think what he's getting at here is that they do still characterize the lives of the false teachers. Their false doctrine has prevented them from being separated out in a holy life from the culture around them. And instead, they epitomize the culture around them. False teachers can be identified by the disgraceful character, but also by their dishonest motive. Their dishonest motive. Notice why these men are engaged in teaching. Paul says, They are teaching, verse 11, for shameful gain. What does Paul mean here? Well, I ask that because elsewhere in 1 Timothy 5, he speaks of true godly teachers in the church and says that they are worthy of double honor, including financial support. So it's not wrong, thankfully, as I say this, it's not wrong to pay a teacher in the church. It's not wrong to pay a pastor. The question is, though, is that their driving motivation for what they're doing? It, it, am, am I standing in this pulpit because I think this is the pathway to riches? That's the question. Even today, this is a huge problem. Just just watch many of the so-called preachers on television. You will see they are constantly begging for money, begging for money, begging for money, telling you to plant your seed of faith in their garden that they may prosper. Now, admittedly, it costs a lot of money to have a television ministry, But this goes well beyond meeting those kinds of needs. Especially when you have one woman who's on television whose ministry back in 2003 took in $8 million a month. Only 10% 10 of which went out to charitable organizations. Something smells rotten in Denmark when you hear a statistic like that. In 2009, the same woman... Her ministry built a $20 million compound which housed their ministry headquarters as well as five homes for her and her family. We don't have time to go into all the cars, the designer interior, the vases, which cost tens of thousands of dollars, which showed up on the insurance reports for these things. That just doesn't seem right, does it? Now understand, it's not because I'm one of the 99%, you know, and we want to stick it to rich people. That's not what we're talking about here. God does not begrudge anyone making money. The question is, though, where is your focus and why you're making the money and how are you going to spend it? Here we see people making lots of money, spending it apparently all on themselves. And that's a far cry from the examples of Jesus and Paul and many others that we see in the Scriptures. Paul says that he would minister amidst poverty and suffering and do it with joy. Why? In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. He says, it doesn't matter if I'm rich, it doesn't matter if I'm poor. I am still going to minister with the intent and the desire with which God has called me, and that is to proclaim Christ. Why? Because people are sinful, they are dead in their sins, they're on their way to hell, they need to hear the saving message of Jesus. And when they get saved, that's only good for them. It brings Christ's glory because it shows Him to be an excellent Savior. That's the motivation that we see throughout the Scriptures for those that would teach God's word not a motivation that is driven by greed finally notice the effect of this false ministry Paul says in verse 11 it is characterized by destructive teaching destructive teaching Paul says the false teachers in Crete were upsetting whole families by teaching what ought not to be taught whereas the elders that Titus was to a point in the previous section are to be godly men who, quote, hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Verse 9, these men do the opposite. They do the opposite of what the elders are supposed to do. Rather than holding fast the teaching of the apostles, they teach what ought not to be taught. In other words, doctrine which explicitly does not line up with the apostolic teaching. It does not line up with the faith, the faith given once for all the saints. And notice the damage of this teaching. It doesn't build up. It only tears down. Now, it is true the gospel divides. Jesus himself said that. When the gospel comes into a family and only some believe and others don't, friction will occur. But that's not what he's talking about here. This is something else. He says whole families have been upset by this teaching. Imagine uh, this is not a place where the church has existed for 20, 30, 40, 200 years where the, the, the faith in a good sense is old no, this is, this is where the church is young. And you can imagine an entire family embracing Christ as we see often in the book of Acts. We see husband and wife and children, perhaps extended aunts and uncles, grandparents. They have all been gripped by the message of Christ. and They have turned and believed. And now their young faith is looking for teaching to help grow and be strengthened in it. And suddenly false teachers come. And what was once a vibrant and growing faith that was strong is now being choked out and is shriveling up like a plant that is denied sun or water. Paul says that's the kind of damage done by false teaching. So this is what characterizes false teachers. This is, this is as you're looking out and wondering, is this guy, is this gal on the level? You will notice their disgraceful character, their dishonest motive, and their destructive teaching. The bigger question that we need to ask and understand, though, is where do those kind of people come from? How how do false teachers spring up? And the reality is they, they have a false foundation. They have a false foundation from which they are produced. And so here we need to see the second thing. We need to understand the root of false teachers. We need to understand the root of false teachers. From where do they spring up? Here we're looking at verses 14 through 15, and we see Paul explaining this very thing. What has led them into the dangerous place and the destructive ministry in which they find themselves? Essentially, there are three errors that they have made. First of all, they follow man-made authority. They follow man-made authority. Earlier in the passage, Paul said that false teachers were subversive, rebelling against the authority of God. Now he explains that the men were devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the faith. Now previously he had said these are people of the circumcision. That just means ethnically they are Jewish. Now throughout the New Testament we read about another group, notorious group of Jewish false teachers called the Judaizers and their whole... Uh, error was to say jesus is great but you've also got to keep the law it's jesus plus something and paul is very clear jesus plus something equals hell because jesus alone is the savior when you try to add something to him you are essentially creating salvation by works it's not jesus is the entry point jesus is everything That those are the Judaizers. Now this is something different though. Here we see this false teaching wrapped up. He points very specifically to this Jewish mythology. And we don't know exactly what these myths were. But from the context here as well as from statements made uh, about similar people in 1 Timothy. It seems like these were untrue, even fanciful stories uh, that were kind of expanded upon from the biblical narrative. So it's kind of like Grimm's fairy tales uh, based on Old Testament characters. It's not true, um, but they're speculative ideas, oftentimes tied to genealogies and, and who is related to who and how that should affect their life. And, of course, the big problem with all this is that these false teachers are putting more stock in those kinds of things than in the clear teaching of God's Word even though uh, this is really not substantiated by anything other than a loose association of the Old Testament, they don't stick with the Old Testament as their as their foundation. Instead, they go off and they emphasize all of these speculative things, all of these mythological things that they think are really important, but in fact have no basis in reality. Several times I have talked with people that have had, um, not necessarily unorthodox, but mildly, wrong ideas about scripture and and i've tried to sit down with them and open the bible and begin to show them this is why what you believe is wrong and why it's going to be harmful in your walk with god and on more than one occasion in fact more more times than i would like to to think about the person has essentially come back with this response that's what my old pastor used to teach and i don't want to disagree with him that's what my mom taught me when i was little and i don't want to i don't want to say she's wrong rather than having the, 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 the clarity to say, yeah, that, that sure seems like what it's saying, and, and, and taking, taking God's word for it, as it were. No, they want to rely on what this other person has said, whether it's because they love them or respect them or whatever. And in fact, that's the same thing that these people are doing. Rather than submitting to the authority of God's word, they are looking to someone else, someone of far less stature and trustworthiness. It says they follow the commands of men rather than God. That, that is always, always a bad plan. But especially when these men lead you away from the truth. Ultimately, that's what a false teacher is. It is someone that leads you away from the truth. And what the church needs, what you and I need, are solid godly men who lead us to the truth. We need to understand also, when we talk about growing deeper in our understanding of the truth, it's not just knowledge, It is that, but it's more than that because the the New Testament says truth is embodied in a man named Jesus Christ. He is the truth. Therefore, for us to grow in our understanding of Christian doctrine means we are to grow in our understanding of Christ. For us to grow in our love for God and his attributes and the glory that is revealed in the theology of the Bible means we are to fall more in love with Christ and what he has done for us. He is the eternal God made flesh to reveal the glory of God, both through His righteous living as well as through His suffering and death for sinners. It is this Christ, the Savior, who died for His people and was raised up to reign as the Lord of all things. That stands at the center of all the truth that we believe. Therefore, the test of any teacher, of any teacher, is to determine whether or not they're good or bad, true or false. The test is this. Are they leading you deeper into an appreciation of and a love for Jesus Christ Himself. That's the test. The false teacher can never do that because they don't follow the authority of God's Word, who is all of it is designed to point us forward to Christ. Instead, they're following man made authority. More than that, though, they display a misplaced purity. They display a misplaced purity. In verse 15, Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure. to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their minds and their consciousness are defiled. One of the main problems, as we'll see over the next few weeks, is that these false teachers think that what you can do externally with your body is the source of their purity, rather than inwardly where you place your faith. In other words... They got caught up in ritual washings and ceremonial actions and avoiding certain kinds of food because they believed they would be better off spiritually to do those things or avoid those things. Yet what has Paul said here? He said these things have come not from the truth of God's word but from Jewish myths and the commands of men. Because the truth is you cannot depend on any human ritual to make you pure before God. It it simply doesn't work. God is the one who makes you pure. Not just by justifying you in Christ, but also by sanctifying you in Christ. What do I mean? Let me unpack that. Our justification, which is a big word in the New Testament, is talking about our legal declaration of righteousness before God. We are sinners. We deserve hell. And yet Christ paid the penalty for that on the cross so that when we put our faith in Him, God looks at us and counts Christ's righteousness as our righteousness and declares us not guilty, declares us righteous before Him. There's a problem. We're still sinful. We're still unholy. Therefore, after declaring us righteous, God then begins to work to make it true. By his word and his spirit, by the community of faith, he begins to work deep down into our lives so that what was declared about us now becomes reality. He actually begins cleansing us from sin, allowing us to cast off old habits, old attitudes, false assumptions and beliefs, and actually become righteous before him. Of course, Paul says that the time when that process will be finished is the last day when Christ returns for His people and they are raised up incorruptible, made after the glorious image of their risen Savior. Purity, real purity, comes not from external things that we do, but what God does within us. Paul says this makes all the difference. So those who are pure, that is, those who have been declared pure in Christ, those who are being made pure in Christ, then all things are pure. Meaning, what they do with right motives, by faith in God, following right teaching, means nothing is going to defile them. Paul says elsewhere, eat, drink, do all for the glory of God. Those ritual things are not going to affect you. But for those who are defiled and unbelieving, for those who are not in Christ, who have not believed... For those who reject the authority of God and the grace of Christ, nothing will ever make them pure. Nothing will bring purity to them. No ritual, no tradition, no human command will ever make them less than what they are, defiled by their sin before God. This is the, that's, a, that's the huge error that these false teachers make and many others still make today. They trust in man-made authority and they live by misplaced purity. All of that gives rise to their false teaching, but so does this also, a mistaken knowledge. A mistaken knowledge. Paul says these false teachers profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Listen listen to that again. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Think about how profoundly sad that is. I, I, I don't think that... They're, being, they're, they're trying to be deceptive in professing to know God. I think they genuinely think they know God. I think that they believe they are rightly related to Him. And yet, what does Paul say? Paul says their life betrays the fact they don't really know God. They are living by their works rather than by faith. And therefore, what they say is true is not true about them. And I think... Frankly, what we need to have our own toes stepped on a little bit here, because along with many other denominations, one of the one of the doctrines that Baptists uh, rightly delight in is the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer, which says for those who have turned away from sin and profess faith in Christ, for those who have experienced the new birth from above and are saved, they will forever be saved because God will preserve them. To the end even as they seek to persevere for him the problem though is that we have watered that down we have tainted it we have we have twisted to say as long as you say a prayer as long as you get wet through baptism as long as you walk an aisle or in some way say i am a christian then that's it it doesn't matter what you say or what you do or what you believe you will always be saved and friends and loved ones that's not in the bible anywhere You you, you will never find that. And so what winds up happening is then we see somebody else who is falling away, who is going off the path, who is beginning to deny their knowledge of God by their works. And we say, that's okay, they they prayed the prayer. We watch them slowly walk their way to hell because the reality is there is such a thing as a false profession of faith. There is possible one who says and maybe even believes, I know God, and they don't know Him at all. They never have. It's not as if they were saved and they lost it. Jesus says, no, they never knew me because I never knew them. That's what he says in Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. What a scary place to be. To think, I am going hard after God. I am serving Him. I am prophesying for Him. I am casting out demons. I do mighty works. And yet Jesus says, but it was all in vain because you never knew Me. You were following man-made authority instead of My authority. You had a misplaced purity because you were trusting in what you were doing to make you right with Me rather than what I had already done for you. You thought you were trusting me, but you never had faith in me. You never knew me, and I never knew you. Such are the false teachers who profess knowledge of God and yet deny him by their sinful lives they live and the tainted doctrine that they preach. In verse 16, Paul comes to the end and draws this conclusion. These false teachers are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These are some of the things that lay at the root of false teachers, how they come about and have the ungodly ministry that they have. But let me just say, you don't have to be a false teacher to have fallen into the trap of these things. You could be the victim of false teaching or unwise counsel, and you'll find yourself moving in the direction of sinful living and rebellious of belief that Paul characterizes these false teachers with. And to you, I would simply say this, turn towards Christ. Turn to the Savior who died for you because He died to redeem you from such things. Whether you began well and truly had faith in Christ and you've become confused and your lifestyle reveals that, repent, come back to Him and He will gladly forgive you. Perhaps though, you began poorly. You were, you were declared, it was declared to you a false gospel whereby you trust in yourself and not wholly in Christ. In which case, throw off That self-reliance. Throw off that trust in your works. Look to Jesus and believe in Him. And He will forgive you and save you. He will be the good shepherd because He's laid down His life for the sheep. This is the picture of false teachers that Paul gives. Now, what do we do about it? How do we guard against them? This is the last thing we want to see this morning. Guard the truth against false teachers. Guard the truth against false teachers. It's not simply enough to identify false teaching in the church something has to be done about it it cannot be left alone otherwise it becomes like a gangrenous infection spreading throughout a limb causing the whole body to be sick so how is the church to deal with false teachers first of all we silence their voice we silence their voice paul is very quick to say when it comes to false teachers verse 11 they must be silenced now that let's just be honest that that cuts across the grain of our culture doesn't it where everybody gets a voice everybody should be heard everybody has a right to speak and Paul says I don't think so doesn't work that way in the church now let me back up and say for our country as a whole that is a good thing number one because it keeps our politicians honest it keeps our it keeps our leaders honest with us because they have to deal with the dissenters who would say we don't think you're doing a good job they can't just have crony and crony stooges all around them all the time it keeps government in check and allows frankly for us to more freely proclaim the gospel this is why we should not get worked up and we say i can't believe they let ex religious group stand at the corner and, and 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 preach their false doctrine we should be glad they did that because that means the next week we get to stand there and we get to preach and the minute the government starts saying, well, that religion can't talk and that religion can't talk, it is bad news bears for us, okay? Uh, it, it is not going to be good. So freedom of speech in our country is a good thing. But that never applies to the church. Freedom of speech does not exist in the church. Why? Because God doesn't need a committee to evaluate his work. God does not need someone wise to come along and say, here's what he meant to say. He has given us truth, truth with a capital T, truth that is true for all peoples in all places for all time. And anyone who should contradict it needs to be silenced. Now let me, let me give two caveats to that. Number one, that doesn't mean whatever the preacher says is true. Okay? I, I, don't, I don't say that because I think that you should never silence me because I'm not a false teacher. No. Heaven forbid it should ever happen. I could be a false teacher and you need to silence me at that point. You just say, you're wrong, and be done with it. What I'm saying, though, second caveat, is it's not just whatever a preacher says, and therefore that's what he says, and therefore everybody else needs to be quiet. No, it's when he preaches from the Word, the truth of God, and it is clearly the truth of God, that he's a true teacher. And when he does something that explicitly contradicts that, that's when the teacher becomes false and needs to be silenced. The standard is not the title, pastor and who stands in this pulpit. The standard is this book which will far outlive me. Secondly, we're not talking about secondary and and tertiary things. We're not talking about those things that good Christians disagree on. I I feel very strongly that we have a right understanding of baptism. But I'm not going to call my Presbyterian brothers and sisters false teachers and heretics. It's not on the level of what makes you in or out because ultimately, though, it is an act of obedience and love to be identified with Christ through baptism. Baptism does not save us. Believing in Jesus saves us. Therefore, those things that make up essential Christian doctrine are the things we're talking about here. It's when those things are challenged that we say, not on your life. Not on your life. Now, if someone honestly comes to you and is inquiring and says, you know, I don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. It makes no sense to me. Well, first of all, you're not going to have that person teach Sunday school. Okay? But what you may do is take that person out for coffee for the next ten weeks. And look at the scriptures and help them to understand what... The Trinity is. In other words, you don't just say, nope, quiet, get out of here. We don't want to, we, nope, you can't say anything. No, if someone has honest questions, we take them aside, we disciple them, we teach them, we help them understand. But it's those people, we don't give them a platform for their false teaching. We don't give them a voice in the church that they might spread lies and false doctrine. That's what Paul is getting at here. And again, the sad reality is in large portions of the church in this country, those false teachers are given a voice. Do you know the most prominent way? So-called Christian publishing. More garbage is turned out year after year after year from so-called Christian publishers than, we just, than I think Paul would have ever have thought possible. It used to not be the case. You used to be able to trust Christian publishers, and the heretics would publish through secular publishers. I mean, you go back 50 years, and uh, the crazy guys, uh, they're publishing through like Doubleday and, and all those kinds of uh, things. That's not the case anymore. John MacArthur talks about sitting down with a Christian publisher in the 90s and saying to him, I want to ask you a question. Why in the world would you publish Benny Hinn's book, Good Morning, Holy Spirit? Now, if you don't know anything about that book, don't go read it. That's the first thing I'll say, Okay? Uh, but understand that when it was, when he first wrote it, it actually was so unorthodox, it got sent back and said, you've got to change this. I mean, going back to the doctrine of the Trinity, he said there, there were three threes, there were nine persons in the Trinity. Okay, uh, It still has crazy stuff in it, and it still got published. And MacArthur is therefore right in wondering, why would you publish that? The publisher's answer, he said, was simple to the point, quote, oh, we publish everything. We publish everything. The sad reality is, uh, for a guy who loves books, there's only about three publishers that I will, I just implicitly trust. It doesn't matter what they publish, even if it's not great, I know it's orthodox. I know it's not going to compromise the truth of God's word. Only three out of the ten major publishing houses that exist today. Why? Because they will, the others will publish everything. They have succumbed, more than likely, to the God of money, and therefore follow it with whatever they publish. In the churches, frankly, the problem is the same, but the motive is different. Now we're too forgiving. Well, they didn't mean it. Or, well, we just want to love them. We worry about being seen as too narrow-minded or too hard-nosed. So when someone says something completely absurd... And it even makes national headlines. The church rallies around their pastor and says, No, but it's okay. He should still talk. He's a good guy. It doesn't matter if he's a nice guy. He's spewing something that denigrates God and what he has taught in this world. Silence him. That's what Paul says. More than that, though, we should not just silence him. We should not just silence their voice. We should rebuke their sin. We should rebuke their sin. It's not enough just to say be quiet. They didn't know why they're being told to be quiet. Paul says rebuke them sharply. And in these two things, Paul shows that in dealing with false teachers, Titus is meant to protect the people of the church and appoint elders who will protect the people of the church. First, it showed it's about stopping them from teaching and showing them that they're not only wrong in doctrine, but also wrong in their life before God. But more than that, it's not simply enough to point out their sin. It's about confronting them. It's about rebuking them for their sin. And, and let me be clear, we don't think in this term very often, but preaching or teaching false doctrine is sin. Earlier we said that false doctrine leads to to bad fruit in your life. That's obviously sin. Immorality is obviously sin. But false teaching is also a sin. Because it's a false declaration about the one true God. It sullies his name and tarnishes his character. It undermines his goodness and veils his wisdom. It weakens his power and nullifies his love. In the end, false teachers distort and devalue God's glory. What could be more sinful than that? What could be more sinful than that? Paul says that false teachers must be silenced and rebuked, not only to protect God's people, but also for their own good. This is the last thing. In guarding the truth against false teachers, you silence them, you rebuke them, but then third, you seek their redemption. You seek their redemption. Verse 13, rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. That, frankly, is one of the most astonishing things to read in this paragraph. I mean, think about how Paul has absolutely vilified and excoriated these false teachers. He has picked apart their life and doctrine saying they are unfit for the church, damaging for the people of God. His final analysis is that they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And yet he says they are not beyond redemption. They're not beyond redemption. Paul doesn't say, run them out of town on a rail, never to be heard from again. He says, try to rescue them. Confront them. Silence them. Make them aware of their error so that they might turn, repent, and find forgiveness in life with God. Paul, I think, teaches that because in part that was his life, wasn't it? Before coming to Christ, he was both in teaching and in life a destroyer of the church. And then Christ knocked him to the ground with the blazing light of his glory and showed him a better way. Showed him the truth of who he was and what he was doing and caused him to be now a builder of the church. Even in confronting something as terrible and dangerous as false teaching, we should have a redemptive purpose. It is never just to drive the knife in. Often, All all manner of church discipline, but especially this, is about one-upmanship and punishing someone. And Paul says that's not, that's not what we're seeking to do. First of all, we are seeking to maintain the purity of God's people and keep them from from falling aside. So, so, So we fight hard against false teaching, but we also do it for the sake of their own soul. Fighting against false teaching is about loving God and upholding His glory. It's about loving God's people and pursuing their good. But it's also about loving God's enemies and seeking their salvation. Paul has said in verses 5-9 through that there needs to be godly leadership in the church. And he's told us why. Because there's going to be false teachers. And and, and frankly, the reality is even the best and most godly teachers are always going to fail you because they're simply men. That means they're imperfect, they're, they're fallible, and they're sinful. But as Joe read earlier in the service, in the midst of these evil, wicked shepherds, who are beating and abusing the sheep, there is a good shepherd who not only provides for and guides and protects his sheep, he even lays down his life for them. All shepherding ministry is to point us to that good shepherd, Jesus Christ. It is to not only teach us about him and cause us to love him, but the very way in which we go about doing those things is supposed to be modeled after him. So pray for The teaching ministry of the church, not just this church, but the churches where your friends go, your families go. Pray that those teachers would would not only point to Christ, but they would model Christ in being a good shepherd for their people. Pray that they would be strong in guarding and protecting against false doctrine. Not because they feel threatened, but because they love God and His people. Father, that is our earnest desire that we would love You, God, more than anything else. And because we love you, then we would love your people. Oh God, we do pray that you would protect our own hearts from false teaching, God, that you would keep us from following after fanciful things, things that have no basis in the Scriptures, God, but tickle our ears and cause us to feel good about ourselves. Father, we pray that we would be straightened out by the clear teaching of your word, that Good and pure theology about you and what you have done and your plan for this world will cause our minds and our hearts to be so gripped that we will come in line with your plans for this world as we trust you and find you to be a God who cleanses his people from sin. God, may we be right in our beliefs about you and may we be right in our behavior for you. God, this is the message that Titus was presented with by the Apostle Paul. This is the message that we need to hear today. God, help us to hear it clearly and embrace it. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.